Hey, Paul, we're back. <laughs> yeah, that we are, Matt. That we are. Yeah, I probably should start the show the same time every way. This is Dr. Matthew Watto. We are the Curbsiders. I'm here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Tonight, we are going to be recapping some recent episodes, uh, two recent episodes, one on palpitations and one on erectile dysfunction. How do these two things go together? They really don't. It's just random. Oh, au contraire, mon frere, because if we're talking about <laughs> cardiovascular disease, we could say those two are unified by, by I think, that thing, which we'll talk about as we get into the episode. So that's, I, I think we can make true. it work, Matt. That's true. All right, Paul, thank you. Can you tell people, what do we normally do on the show? And uh, yeah, let's let's start there. Happy to, as always. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. This time you're getting sort of secondhand expert interviews where we basically recap um, the conversations that we had with two experts. Uh, as, as you mentioned, we talked to the great Dr. Josh Cooper uh, about palpitations and his really thoughtful and patient-centered workup. And then we will seamlessly transition to Dr. Ashley Winter, who um, Twitter icon um, <laughs> and urologist extraordinaire who talks us through her approach to erectile dysfunction um, and how she how she manages and approaches that. So it was two great conversations that we will now recap for you. First up, episode number 320. And Paul, when, when talking about palpitations and taking the history, Dr. Cooper told us he likes to ask the patient to tap out on the back of their hand, the, the strength of the, what they're feeling, the rhythm of what they're feeling. And that he said, helps him get a good sort of just like a visual, I guess there's sound, there's visual. It's much better than what I've been doing, Paul. So I, I've definitely <laughs> used that multiple times since we recorded this episode. And, um, the, the other thing, if you read about it, there are some things patients tell you that can help key you in a little bit on on what might be the cause. Nothing is absolute. He said, uh, some, one of the things that I read that I thought was cool, Paul, I, although I haven't met this patient yet, is that like if they describe a flip-flopping feeling in their chest, that could be PVCs. I tried to pitch that to Dr. Cooper, and he he doesn't seem to, <laughs> to use that one. Yeah. What he did tell me, Paul, is that uh, tachyarrhythmia is like an SVT. They tend to be very like abrupt onset versus something like an anxiety disorder uh, causing the palpitations. That tends to sort of build, uh, have a slow build. Anything else from the history that you that you thought was exciting, neat that you're that you're changing your practice based on? I did so a, a couple of things. I mean, we um, we talked about red flag symptoms that probably warrant a little bit more urgent evaluation. So that chest pain is not normal, and we should be a little bit more excited about. Even feeling kind of lightheaded is a little bit unusual. And then syncope is the one that should really uh, should really worry you because it might represent a lethal yeah. um, or malignant arrhythmia. So that's one that has to get worked up quickly because obviously bad things can happen. I think we also the other thing that we touched on is. Um, Women in particular are, are probably underdiagnosed in terms of SVTs and, and tachyarrhythmias, and it's often chalked up to anxiety, um, probably far more often than it should be, and we don't really do our due diligence. Um, so in, in terms of the history, you know, just because a patient endorses anxiety, two things can be true. So don't just think that you're done with your workup necessarily, and, and don't just sort of stop or try to talk the patient into having anxiety. Like they're, um, This is probably more prevalent than we give her credit for, and we're probably not um, doing the full workup some of the time, which I thought was a helpful conversation. I think it's really important. I, 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 we've, it's, this maybe seems like it's come up multiple times recently. I'm trying to think the other episode where it came up, but don't just jump, especially just to, don't jump to just calling it anxiety. Make sure you do your due diligence. Think about what else this could be. Anxiety is, 
up to 30% of the time, something like that, and some of the review articles I was reading could be the cause of this, but you don't want to get there first without thinking through uh, what else could this be. He, We did ask him about wearable devices as well when you're in this part of the history gathering phase, and he said, actually, he doesn't hate them. I thought he was going to maybe say, oh, they're garbage, forget about it, but he said, no, actually, it could be useful because he encourages the patients to bring that to bring that in, show him what they're seeing. A lot of times he can say, oh no, that's junk, that's nothing. Or sometimes he might say, actually, we looks like we might have picked up some AFib or something. So it's there there is not um there it's not like there's no place for these things. And, and that was an answer I was a little bit surprised by, Paul. I, I'm not sure about you. No, it was it was kind of nice to see because I think anything that empowers patients is probably a good thing on balance. So I'm glad that we don't yeah. have to be immediately dismissive. Let me, it, let me it do reminded this. me about like the cell phone video with seizures. Remember yeah, yeah, yeah. the the epileptologist we spoke to, she's like, Oh yeah, I love it when patients bring in a cell phone video because it actually helps me in my diagnostic process. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it's not all technology is evil, just most of it. I think that's exactly right. Let me let me pull a Wado and, and use this framing device for you. So let's say we have a patient um come into our office, they're reporting palpitations, they even tap them out for you, and we do an AKG in the office and it is stone cold normal. Um and at that point, are we are we done? You know, we're sort of in monitoring land. Is there anything else that we should do? Or can we just be completely enormously reassured that we have normal EKGs? So we should probably just start them on an SSRI. Yeah, that would be that would be the wrong thing to do. And I, I think he he I was surprised a little bit about how much he said, no, the EKG is valuable. You should get the EKG. If it's normal, fine, that gives you some information. But if it's abnormal, you know, you can see rhythm disturbance, you can see evidence of maybe a structural heart disease, and that might lead you whether or not you need to get an echo and how soon you need to get an echo. So it is valuable and it should be done. The other basic workup that he said he does in is maybe a CBC, a metabolic panel, check the electrolytes. Anytime you're talking about palpitations, check a thyroid if it hasn't sure. been done six times already in the past year. Like, <laughs> Everyone I see, Paul, they've had six TSH checked in the past like three three years somehow. It, it seems it's quarterly just, for a lot of our patients. Yeah, I think that's yes. right. More than like lipids. He also, um, I'll get to the monitors in a second, but he does ask about things like alcohol use um, and and other substances. Paul, coffee. We we told him to watch out. Uh, he said coffee. You know, certainly some patients notice that their palpitations are tied to coffee, but. As we've covered many times on the show, coffee, very good for you. And there was even a recent article saying that coffee was not associated with tachyarrhythmias, but alcohol was. So it, it's not impossible. It, and I wouldn't, if the patient clearly clearly uh, ties their coffee drinking to palpitations, fine. But I think it's not like they, it's not like they can never have coffee if they have palpitations. Yeah, it felt a little bit analogous to the approach to GERD and sort of food avoidance, where like just avoiding everything is not the right move, but if there's a specific oh, trigger, good, then, yeah, then by like all that. means, then avoid it. So yeah, it's, it's sort of this, it's going to be very patient specific some of the times, but don't just try to blame it because coffee is wonderful. So for me, Paul, when I'm seeing a patient with palpitations, I'm thinking about other than the history stuff we just talked about, I'm thinking about, okay, do I need to do a monitor? If so, what type? And do I need to get an echocardiogram? What I liked about him, what he said was that let the patient's symptoms dictate the pace and the intensity of the workup, which I thought was just really great wisdom. Probably that applies to a lot of what we do in medicine. It's, yeah. Um, so how do you think about the Holter monitor, Paul, do you, or Holter monitor, event monitor, implantable loop recorder? How do you approach this? Yeah. I mean, what's exactly as you say, and I, I think that... Um, 
Dr. Cooper kind of gave us the, the sweet spot of two weeks is probably enough for most patients. Um, so there, there are certainly, um, you know, the, the days of like the, the clunky vests are happily mostly gone. So like there are wearable patches and devices that can be worn for uh, a couple of days up to a couple of weeks. If you, if you have more sporadic symptoms, if you're talking about someone as particularly someone who has more worrisome symptoms like syncope, or you just, you don't think you're going to catch them over that time frame, then you, you may be left with the implantable loop recorder, which is sort of the, the more definitive device for more, more sporadic, um, more sporadic events. Does that line up with what you remember? Abs yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think the, the point is just make sure you have a sense of the pace of the symptoms because you don't, you don't want to waste their time. They wear a monitor for 48 hours and they're only having symptoms once a month. So you don't catch anything. You know, right. that is just a waste of time and money and it's not, it's not fun to wear the monitor. Uh, as far as the echo goes, the echo really, not every single person needs an echo, but it, depending on your suspicion for structural heart disease, certainly if someone's having uh, syncope uh, and, and palpitations, you know, you're going to probably want to look for structural heart disease in those patients, but this it's, it's not necessarily all comers. If the EKG is abnormal, you see a lot of PVCs, especially if they're multifocal, those would be people definitely you're going to want to get an EKG. Paul, let's get into treatment and referral land. What, tell, tell me some pearls on management here. Yeah, so we I think we spent a fair amount of time talking about management of the SVTs and specifically AVNRT and, and AVRT, probably the, the two more common types of, of SVTs, a lot of letters in there. So the AV nodal reentrant tachycardia versus the um, AV reentrant tachycardia, if memory serves. And we, Dr. Cooper kind of stratifies things in terms of level of intensity of management. So the, the first and the one, you know, if you can get away with it is probably favorable is the, the least intensive, which is just supportive care, which is not as passive as it sounds. So if someone has fairly sporadic symptoms that don't really bother them all that much, they can try vagal maneuvers to break those things. Um, the, I know that your personal favorite is like the the ice pack on the face, which I think uh, pathophysiologically goes, or I guess just physiologically, is like the, the diver reflex. So yeah. that can actually simulate a vagal response. Um, and if, if that works for patients, great, you can be done there. If they have more bothersome symptoms that persist. And that, that seems to be a key feature because if they're just very transient, the medications might not help. But if they if they persist, that medication therapy might be helpful. And the two classes that we sort of talked the most about were beta blockers and then also the non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. And beta blockers have a little bit of a reputation for being, for maybe a, a not great side effect profile for some patients. So I, I think Dr. Cooper favors the calcium channel blockers. And, then, and he, okay. yeah, and he yeah. mentioned the 20 minute, the, the time, the time onset of the medications around 20 minutes, unless the patient's having symptoms that are lasting that long, by the time they take the pill, this, the, the arrhythmia might be gone or the palpitations might be gone. So just keep that in mind before you're prescribing them. Yeah. I mean, that would, that I felt so high yield. Um, and then in terms of the last thing that our electrophysiology colleagues will be doing, obviously, is the, the catheter ablation, which he mentioned can be both diagnostic and therapeutic. So they can map out uh, the pathways and they can also do the ablation, which I think has an efficacy rate of something like 95%. Um, so not nothing pretty definitive if patients have frequent or really bothersome symptoms. And I and I think, you know, we, we talked a little bit before. Yeah, I have a pretty low threshold to refer to electrophysiology for, for even evaluation of palpitations in, in patients. And really, obviously, this depends on, you know, how how many electrophysiologists you have you have one yeah. hand, but we're we're happily yeah. pretty fortunate at, at my branch of cash slack. Yeah, I mean, on the recent ACP recap episode, Alan Dow was talking about how 
with the AFib moving more towards rhythm control again and ablation playing potentially a big part of that, it's like, are we going to run out of electrophysiologists and are we as internists going to need to learn how to use like anti-arrhythmic drugs? I hope not, Paul. I don't, I, I hope not. <laughs> I, yeah, it's rare that I've had a thought, gosh, gosh, I hope we don't run out of cardiologists because for, for me, it feels like <laughs> that's where most of our trainees are going, but I, maybe that's just a biased sample. <laughs> well, Paul, let's, let's take it back to my discussion of monitors. And if we, we put somebody, somebody came into our office, we had them tap things out on their hand. Um, we, we saw some PVCs on their EKG. We get an event monitor, uh, for two weeks and we see that they're having PVCs, uh, relatively frequently. Paul, I don't need to worry about that. Right. Now I'm again, using my excellent framing <laughs> device that probably that doesn't confuse anybody, right? Paul? No, I know. And no, I, I think this is perfect. I would actually correct you and say that PVCs, uh, particularly frequent PVCs, should um, at least raise your eyebrow a little bit. And I, it's, I, I found this to be very helpful because I never quite know what to do with them. I remember in the days of residency, you know, you would check electrolytes and if they were okay, you, you just sort of say, all right, I guess there's nothing else to do here and sort of moonwalk out the door. Um, but it's, <laughs> but frequent PVCs and the magic number seems to be more than 10% of your heartbeats can be a cause of cardiomyopathy. They can actually cause long-term permanent damage. So they need to be taken seriously and they can, they should be managed either with medication therapy or, or even more definitively with catheter ablation. So if, if you see frequent PVCs, again, you should be thinking about your, your friends in electrophysiology. Um, they also, if they are present in patients with structural heart disease or history of ischemic heart disease, again, they should probably have a cardiologist on their side. Uh, if, if memory serves about what we talked about and younger patients, I think it's, if they're infrequent, um, and there's not suspicion for structural heart disease, then you can probably be a little bit more relaxed about them. But for, for patients who probably have other stuff going on with their heart, they should raise a little bit more concern than probably they have historically for me. Yeah, absolutely. That was, that was definitely a change in the framing of this for me. Cause, uh, you can no longer just say, oh yeah, PVCs, nothing to worry about. You really have to quantify them and, and, and think about the patient's overall risk. This episode is brought to you by Pattern. Shopping for disability insurance can be complicated and time-consuming, and busy clinicians shouldn't have to worry about whether or not they're getting the best rate and seeing all the available discounts. And trying to research all your options and make the right decision while you're still in training, that can make the process really overwhelming. But Pattern believes that clinicians have more important things to do than spend hours sorting through numerous insurance options. This is why thousands of doctors trust Pattern to help them compare and understand the disability insurance that they are buying. First, request your quotes online. Second, compare your options and ask questions. And third, secure your policy. Be confident that you have the right policy so that your income is protected. With huge discounts for doctors and training and decreased requirements on labs and physicals, now is truly the best time to request your disability insurance quotes with Pattern at PatternLife.com slash Curbsiders. Again, that's PatternLife.com slash Curbsiders. Well, Paul, you know, you threatened to tie these two topics together. Number 317, erectile dysfunction. We, we talked with the great Dr. Ashley Winter. This, of course, we had a returning, just curbsiders, uh, I guess, all-star alumni, Dr. Hannah Abrams, helping co us co-host this one. And, uh, you know, I want to start again with the history here. Dr. Winter told us, that a lot of patients come see her and they're they're a little freaked out because she is a female urologist and they say, oh, I thought it was going to be so awkward talking about 
my penis to a woman doctor, but she said, actually, they always say, you know, but you made it easy. And that's because she normalizes the conversation. She's not awkward when she's talking about it. And she, she's comfortable talking about it. And we need to be comfortable talking to patients about sexual health and about erectile dysfunction, uh, or they won't be comfortable talking to us about it, which is, you know, it seems like common sense, but it's not necessarily, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily come natural to everybody. No, it's, it's just something, you know, I, I think you should have, yeah, I, I don't know that we talked about screening necessarily, but it's common particularly with certain medications. And I, I think it's worth asking about and just sort of practicing it and getting comfortable talking about it exactly as you say. It, sh- it should be just sort of part of your medical history because, as you know, anything that you're awkward or uncomfortable about will be reflected back on you a thousandfold. So just kind of get used right. to having a, a conversation where you normalize the discussion of it and patients will feel much better and more open talking with you. I think all that's true. So when she's taking the history, she mentioned one of the big differentiators um, is, does this occur when you're having partnered intercourse or unpartnered sexual activity? Um, If it's only occurring during partnered activity, then maybe it's more of a performance anxiety type thing and not necessarily an organic cause. Um, Otherwise, Paul, in my practice, as we've talked about before, um, you know, we're internists. This is we're mostly seeing people with a lot of vascular risk factors, and I'm worried for cardiovascular disease. So, Paul, how much do I have to worry about cardiovascular risk when I, let's say, I see a forty, a person in their forties with a penis, and they're saying, "Hey, doc, I'm having erectile dysfunction." Do I have to worry about this person having having uh, erect, uh, erectile dysfunction? That doesn't matter for their heart. Great. We're doing good. Can I quote the AUA guidelines at you? This is not something we ordinarily do, but symptoms of ED (laughs) may precede a cardiovascular event by up to five years. Further, when ED is present in younger men, it predicts a market increase up to 50 fold. They don't say it just like that, but I get excited by that. In the risk of future cardiac events, suggesting that young men with ED in particular may benefit from CVD risk factor reduction and intervention. So if you have a younger patient presenting to you with erectile dysfunction that you don't think is primarily psychogenic or performance anxiety, you should be concerned. You know, we can, we can deal with it. We can help that patient with that symptom, but it's also a marker for other cardiovascular risk because if the blood vessels and the circulation, the penis are impaired, probably they are around the heart as well. So it's a chance to do all the stuff that we do in primary care. Um, so do things like tobacco cessation counseling, do things like lipid control, do things like glycemic control, um, weight loss in particular, has a market effect. I, I loved her factoid about um, adipose tissue having aromatase, which converts testosterone to estrogen. So even uh, 10% weight loss can improve sexual performance. And then in, in a couple of ways, it can it help with the erectile dysfunction, but then you may also just have more energy for the actual activity itself too. So there's right. um, lots of the things that we sort of do that are our bread and butter that don't have to be a conversation with the urologist. Like we can, we can help with this um, before we even get to the medication. So I just, I'm always excited to talk about that part. Yeah, I'm always looking for ammunition to help people improve their lifestyle, adhere to CPAP therapy, uh, all these all these things that we are always trying to do in primary care. You know, another really I thought just cool reframe that she talked about Paul was just asking patients, "Why are you worried about this? Like what are you what is your goal um for sexual activity?" Cuz sometimes patients they can still have an orgasm with without having. Uh, you, you don't have, need to have an erect penis to have an orgasm. She made that point, and she said some patients are not looking to have penetrative intercourse, um, but they just want to. They just want to know why. What does this mean? Um, do I have cancer? Do I have heart disease? Uh, what does this mean? And and so 
I, th I thought that was a really great reason. So probably something that I'll start asking patients um, because it, it just was a total reframe for me. So Matt, let's say we, we take our excellent history, the patient is completely comfortable with us, and we actually get to the point where we're thinking about treating with medications. We think this is the appropriate patient for that. So we decided to start a PDE5 inhibitor. Um, based on the commercials that I have seen, there <laughs> and, is- And uh, all, all the uh, teen, late night teen comedies for the past 30, yeah, 20 exactly years. Right. So when, when a couple is sort of sitting in their respective bathtubs outside at sunset, there is, is that <laughs> I feel like the risk of priapism is upwards of 90%. So I guess my first question is, do I have to worry about that as a potential side effect and how aggressive about counseling? And then more broadly, how are you counseling your patients to use these medications? Yeah. Okay. So for the audience, Paul being sarcastic, we, we know uh, Dr. Winter uh, mentioned many, many times on the episode that these medicines, all the, while they have a reputation for causing priapism, priapism, they actually do not. That's very rare. And that is, it's actually the injectables where you need to worry about that. Additionally, um, the PDA5 inhibitors, they don't just, it's not like you take the medicine and you immediately have an erection. They, they still require some form of arousal. So patients take it um, within the time window where they may be having sexual activity and they're ready to go. It's in their system, but it doesn't immediately cause an arousal as every, like I said, <laughs> late night teen comedy would have you believe. And, and then again, once again, audience, they do not cause priapism. She was a big fan of Tadalafil, mainly because the, the five milligram dose that you can take every day, it, it reaches a steady state in the system. And that way it can treat both BPH and uh, erectile dysfunction. Um, for patients who don't have BPH and want to take Tadalafil, they can take the on-demand dosing. She called it like the weekend pill, right, Paul? The 10 or the 20 milligram dose where they could take it on a Friday evening and and have it for the weekend. And um it, it, forgive me if I'm saying men, a, a person with a penis, uh, no, I know not all people with penises are male. I, I think we can't say that enough on the show. Um, Paul, anything else about the PDI5 inhibitors, PDE5 inhibitors that you wanted to highlight? I was actually going to ask you. So when you, it's, I have not had a lot of success with insurances in terms of getting these paid for with any kind of regularity. So I wondered if you had any personal tips or tricks to sort of help patients afford these medications, because obviously sexual health is important, but uh, right. Also, insurances are not wildly enthusiastic about this particular class of medications, at least in my um, in my yeah, this, land of cash line. I, I feel like the insurance companies are undervaluing how important uh, sexual activity is for a person's overall health and uh, relationships. And they, they, they give patients eight or 10 pills a month, right? So there's a couple things you can do. Paul, you were telling me you can you can prescribe the biggest size tablet, like let's say 100 milligrams sildenafil, and then patients can either cut it in half or in quarters. So that way they're effectively doubling or quadrupling the number of pills they have. The other trick that I've recently learned now that some of these prescription coupon type um, websites exist, I don't want to name any brands, yeah. uh, endorse any specific brands, but I'm sure people know what we're talking about. Um, they can, instead of using their insurance benefits, they can use one of these websites and they can get, uh, they can still, they still need a prescription, but they can get many, many more tabs. And it's like under $50 a month for something like Sildenafil. They can get, uh, I don't know, Paul, let's just give the range definitely under $50 a month. They can get lots and lots of pills often under like $30 a month. Yeah, no, and um, so I'm sure there's a lot of geographic variability and, you know, recognizing that these companies are 
also problematic in some ways, but until we fix the capitalist hellscape in which we live in, they might be the best option <laughs> for our patients. So it's, this is where we're left with. Yeah. And Paul, so I guess to kind of bring things home here, um, you know, we, I, I think people can listen to the full episode. We, we very briefly touched on some of the male enhancement supplements and things like L-arginine. Um, she said she, she mostly tries to discourage people from the male enhancement supplements. Some of them even have sildenafil in them. Um, you know, you, you never know what you're getting with those. Um, she said L-arginine is like, if people are really wanting a nutraceutical type thing, there's at least some, and we have them linked in the show notes, at least some studies like looking into that. Um, but generally I'm not going to be recommending that in my practice, Paul, I'm not sure about you. No, no, absolutely not. Yeah. There's, there's plenty of like male enhancement supplements available in bodegas that are just, it's just such a weird cocktail of God knows what. So yeah, I, I actively recommend right. against it most of the time. And one other medication pearl, um, before we get on to the, some of the injectables and surgical stuff, she mentioned that the, uh, Mira Begron, this, this newer, it's, I believe it's a beta three agonist, Paul, and that may have some pro erection effect effects. So if, if men also have overactive bladder systems, we already talked about BPH and, uh, with Tadalafil for BPH and erectile dysfunction. Well, if they have erectile dysfunction and overactive bladder, maybe Mira Begron is your choice. You know, that's the first I've heard it, and I haven't had the occasion to use it yet, Paul, so I, I can't speak to it too much more than that. But, you know, people can look into that if, if you have the right patient that fits. But, Paul, tell, tell the audience, what else, what else can we do beyond what we just talked about? Well, once, you know, I, I think this, this is stuff that happens mostly after we refer our patients to our friends in urology. But there are other non-medication options that are available to our patients. So I, I think I would actually lead with probably... Um, uh, psychotherapy is probably a choice for patients who have performance anxiety. And I think couples counseling, if there's sort of couple specific stuff and, and psychiatric component, not psychiatric, but sort of um, psychological components to the patient's erectile dysfunction, that's probably a reasonable place to start before we start with medications. If you think this is more um, a structural or sort of organic thing, other things we can consider, we talked briefly about the vacuum pumps, um, which Dr. Winter was not a huge fan of. She just didn't think they were very efficacious. Other injections in, or other options include uh, injectable medications. I think papaviran was the one that we we talked about specifically, where the patient um, injects directly, uh, and it's a tiny needle. Um, so, it, I mean, it, it obviously that may sound alarming to a lot of patients, but it's it's a very small needle, and you can actually counsel the patient's partner to help with that, and even make it part of the the, the foreplay. These things mitigate the systemic effects of the PDE five drugs, but um, they actually have the higher risk of priapism or priapism. So, just be mindful of that and have to do a little bit of proactive counseling. Um, and then there are surgical options. There are implantable devices that can be either malleable or inflatable that are, are available depending on what the patient's needs and preferences are. So other other things that our, our friends in urology can offer the patients if the medications aren't effective or if they, they'd like something a little bit more definitive. So take-home message, uh, don't be afraid to talk to your patients uh, about their penis, about their erectile function, and, uh, and help them out with some medications. Um, Paul... You know, I think we've done great work tonight. We've covered two fantastic recent episodes. I think we're going to get back to making these these shorter episodes at least once a month. We've had some, you know, it's been a weird time of transition, but uh, hopefully we can get back into these. And maybe people are seeing us on video for this one. And, uh, you know, if that freaks you out, we understand. Let us know. We'll stop doing it. It's probably it. better but, to not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, some people like the video, so we'll we'll see what it we'll see what happens, Paul. Uh, with that, Paul, will you take us to an outro? Happy to, as always. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole.
Yeah, I mean, I, I hope to God this is a video just so people can enjoy that moment. Get your show notes <laughs> at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, which recaps the latest practice changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to providing high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or now on Spotify. Or you can email us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that most episodes are available through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for free CME. These episodes... Uh, not this specific episode, but the two that we talked about, number 317 and 320, you can claim CME for those. A special thanks to Paul, my co-host for this one, for helping to write and produce this episode. This episode was produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And you know what, Paul? Uh, with all that, I think until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. <laughs> I'm here to assure you, you have been, in fact, Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. I remain, as always, <laughs> Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.